Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Harry. And this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking to the leader of Westminster Council to look into all things local government. I'm Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor of The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have our staff writer and editor, Harry Lambert, and leader of Westminster Council, Adam Hugg. Thanks so much for joining us, Adam. Lovely to be here. I think you are actually our first council leader to come into the studio and speak to us on the podcast, which is great and very exciting. But it also speaks to something Harry and I were chatting about on a recent episode about perhaps the slight neglect of local government, local authorities and their interaction with Westminster in mainstream political journalism. Yeah, and and our failure to interact with them. So I'm glad we're correcting that. Yeah, we are. So you've been a Westminster councillor since 2010, is that right? And you took over leader last... Last May, and that was after Labour won the Council of the Conservatives for the first time in history. Yes, it's been a long road to get there, but it was an amazing moment last May when we finally had the opportunity to put our ideas into action after many years with our noses pressed up against the glass of what at times seemed like eternal Tory rule. But we're able to chip away at that. We obviously got there last May. And why do you think that happened? A number of things. I think there has been a significant change in voting intention across central London in particular, as more middle-class affluent families have been put off by the Conservative government. The the whole raft of people who may have once voted for Tony Blair back in the day, but were solidly in the David Cameron camp, who've just been turned off increasingly by the Conservative government, and I think particularly post-Brexit. And there's obviously local factors where when the council had been in one-party control for 58 years, they just got very complacent. They spent a lot of time telling people how good they were And at some point, people said, no, hang on a sec, that doesn't tally with my everyday life. And they felt that they'd they'd gone off the boil. And I think, yeah, we had an opportunity to say, look, here's what's been going wrong recently, everything from the £6 million marble arch mound through to some of the more egregious issues in the planning system that had gone wrong over the years where residents weren't getting a fair deal. And then we put out a positive but pragmatic vision of what we could do over the next four years. And people were willing to listen to that. And it's been exciting over the last year being being given the opportunity to put that into practice. Mm. And what's it been like? Because I was in Suffolk recently talking to the Green councillors who won Mid-Suffolk Council of the Tories in a historic win. They'd just been in a council meeting actually and they were saying how difficult it was actually bringing this council round to their way of thinking, their priorities, because it had been that sort of one-party rule for so long as you've described in Westminster. So what presumably you're still grappling with that now. What's it been like trying to turn that the council establishment, if you like, round to 
Labour's priorities. I mean, I, I've had a very positive experience over the last year, and I, I know that's not the same for everyone who goes in and takes over a new council, but I think I've been impressed by the professionalism of the officer team that we've inherited, but also the genuine enthusiasm for doing something different. And obviously there's a lot of people who actually are really supportive of what we're trying to do in terms of how that matches with their vision for public service. But there's also a, a lot of people who thought we've done something one way for 58 years, let's try something different. So I think we've been really impressed by that. I think there's obviously always the institutional inertia of when you're trying to do lots of different things to deliver change quickly. So sometimes that doesn't happen as fast or as, as fully as you'd like. But in terms of the direction of travel, we've been extremely heartened by the experience over the last year or so. And that's borne out by the fact we're beginning to be able to put our ideas into practice in a meaningful way. I hear all that, Adam. And I, what I wanted to just understand is what the game is that you're actually playing in the sense that how much money does Westminster Council bring in? In what forms? And what does it mainly get spent on? Big questions. But if we could just start at the top with council tax. Westminster has a has a different setup to a number of councils. Obviously, council tax is an important contributor to our budget, but we are lucky in the sense that we have a significant amount of commercial income by the benefit of being where we are in central London. And there are obviously a number of fees and charges, such as parking income, which enables us to cover our costs for transportation systems and other stuff in a way that can't be done in certain other authorities. So the makeup of our finances is slightly different to many other councils. But council tax is obviously an important part of the mix. Can I just ask you what you mean by commercial? Everything from filming rights for, yeah, when someone wants to go and shoot a picture in London, we help facilitate the delivery of that. Obviously, we have commercial property that we own in Westminster that we've owned for a long time, that obviously earns an income to support the budget of the council. So there's a range of different things, everything from hosting things to running things, which gives us more strings to our bow than some other councils. But it's not a it's not a magic wand. So Westminster's had to find almost £200 million in either savings or increased income over the last 12 years since the start of austerity. Uh, we're having to find £60 million again over the next couple of years. We've made some progress towards that, but there's still a lot more that we have to do in terms of finding that money to make sure that we can have a robust budget going forward. So we're not immune from the problems that other parts of local government have had. Just to get a sense of the numbers, I just about found your budget, I think, online. And it's got around 880 million in expenditure. Does that sound right? And then about 690 million in income. And then the gap, which is 190 odd million, if you're still listening at home, <laughs> uh, a third of that's covered by council tax. And then you get a portion of money from the government. So that is all the total amount of money that washes through our systems. So that's from everything, including money that goes directly to schools, has to benefit, all sorts of things that basically wash through the, count, the council system to be delivering statutory services. So the net controllable budget, the bit that we right. can actually, as local councillors, have a particular influence over is just under 200 million. Okay. So that, so when we're, when we're in, the, in part of the budget cycle, that's the amount of money that we really have the ability to have influence over. Some of the earnings go into other parts of the budget, which means that we don't have to cover bits in terms of pothole filling and stuff like that from our net controllable budget. So, in, But in terms of the budget that we actually have to deal with on a day-to-day basis, it's about 200 million. And then on top of that, there's obviously capital investment in terms of mm-hmm. helping us build everything from council housing to new roads and everything like that. So that's a separate budget. That's really helpful. But to understand one of the sources of income that you can potentially increase. I was talking to Tony Travers, the, the local government expert earlier, and he was saying it's tough for you because council tax, you've chosen to fro- freeze it at the moment. It's very inflexible tax. You can't increase it for higher bounds. So I'm imagining you've chosen to freeze it in order to protect 
if you like, the poorer residents of your well, council. It is a very regressive tax. There's a the whole national argument about how you could reform or replace it. We understand the massive challenges that have meant that every government hasn't had a chance to do that. We, we are absolutely committed to keeping our council tax low, precisely, as you said, to protect those who are on lower incomes and who are living in what is quite often a very complex and busy city. What well, lots of things are going on. So we value keeping it low. But obviously, that does mean that in a world where there was looking at reform, you might want to look at what you could do with the top band of, of council tax to see whether there's the ability to fully capture some of those higher incomes. But again, that's a reforms that re- the previous administration requesting that is something that we obviously would look to do. But we recognise that's not where government is at the moment. But what we are looking at is one of the things we would really be keen to see happen here is an overnight stay levy like many other parts of the world have, because Westminster spends an awful lot of money dealing with the visitor economy. So Westminster has about 235,000 residents and over a million people coming into our city every day, whether that's for businesses or for tourism. And we are providing from our council services to service that one million population. So I think we'd like to be able to see local councils raise a small £2 or whatever it is levy on on, on hotels and Airbnb to be able to contribute towards that cost. And I think if we're looking at local government financial reform, that I think that to me seems like a really simple and effective thing to deliver. Is that something that you've spoken to Keir Starmer or the relevant shadow cabinet team about? Absolutely. We're in we're in regular contact with the shadow cabinet team about those issues. I think there's a understanding in local government that we're obviously keen to see reform in that area. All those matters being worked through at a national level by Labour as it prepares its manifesto for the next election. Travers portrayed it very interestingly for me. He said, look, if you guys could raise a lot of money, if you just started approving 85-storey towers in Westminster, you have some of the most valuable land in the country and a lot of people that want to build there. And as far as I understand it, you can you raise money from developers in two ways. One, through this community infrastructure levy, which is, I'm explaining for the listeners rather than for yourself, levied on... It's complicated. ...is <laughs> levied on the size of the development in square metres. And then also you have this Section 106 deals that you do ad hoc or individually with developers where you also get money that way. And in other words, there's two ways of getting money from developers for the disruption and everything else. Now, if you approved much more development and bigger developments, you could get more money and you could use some of that money to level up North Westminster, if you like, the poorer parts of your constituency. The problem, obviously, that you have is a lot of residents don't want development, certainly anywhere near them. So is that the tension that you also see? History of development in Westminster has been quite fraught because we saw a local council under the the previous administration that wasn't willing to ask developers to pay their fair share. The history of Westminster planning is filled with hundreds of affordable homes that could have been built if they just applied even their mediocre policy at the time. But they would just wave through developments with far fewer homes. And that would have made a game-changing difference to the housing waiting list, to opportunities for key workers in Westminster. But they would be rather out whining and dining, the developers rather than getting in a room and and getting those deals done. But I think that the real challenge we have now is dealing with the future. We do have an economy that means that the developers aren't building anywhere. So some of this is hypothetical because the economy is tanked right now and no one's building housing at the moment. People are still building offices, but there is a real problem in the residential market at the moment. And I think part of that is there's been a a glut of of homes that weren't designed for ordinary people to live in. They were designed to buy to leave investments and everything else. So there's a whole range of structural things there. But look, we want a pragmatic approach with business, with developers and everyone else to make sure that what people build meets the needs of local people, whether that's about accessible spaces, design, environmental quality, but also delivering 
the affordable housing that we need and, as you say, contributing to our infrastructure. So in order for residents to have confidence in development, we've got to, they've got to be clear that they're getting something out of it. After the break, we'll chat more about Westminster Council's policies and opportunities and challenges. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy The New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth. Featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Labour has been coming out with quite a few housing and planning policies lately. How do you feel about some of these policies, particularly the quite controversial plan to build on the Greenbelt? That's tough, isn't it, in, in a city like London where you want to try and avoid building over the few and precious green spaces that there are? So obviously in Westminster, we do have very few green spaces and we have to manage them effectively whilst also delivering our housing targets. But I think ultimately, if you look at the green belt, you've got service stations, all sorts of other low, low end land that is mixed in with the green belt. So I think we want a sensible nationwide approach to identifying suitable sites for housing and making sure that the public benefits from that development. So I absolutely support sensible, measured reforms on the green belt to, to open up new opportunities for housing. But at the same time, looking at other ways that you can get a net gain in biodiversity and opening up of the green spaces and making sure that the green spaces that there are are higher quality. So I think there's a bigger reform piece there. That's a that's obviously on in outer London, but in inner London we're obviously we're looking at making sure that in the very limited amount of land that we have in Westminster, that we get the best deal for local residents in any negotiation. That we're what, involved in. And what about the policy of bringing back local housing targets? We want to build more local housing. We have a big council house building programme at the moment. So we're going to be building over a thousand new council homes for social rent over the next four years. Can you just, can you just put that in context, uh, if you can? How many council homes are there or council housing units are there in Westminster? What is, it, what is a thousand? Is it a drop in the ocean? Is it a lot? It's a important step forward. There are just over 21,000 council and former council homes in Westminster, about 11,500 of them are still council owned. So it's about 10%? Yeah, it's about 10% of our of, of our current stock. So that's over 1,000 and then several hundred key worker homes as, as well on top of that. But we know, as you said, it is a drop in the ocean. So we're, we've got that building programme, which we've increased the number of council homes for social rent by over 300 compared to the pipeline we'd inherited from the Conservatives. And we are also using other pots of money to purchase homes for temporary accommodation, either in Westminster or much closer, because we know there is a huge problem with statutory homelessness, which is obviously costing councils enormous amounts of money, really hard to find places given the state of the private rental sector at the moment. And we've doubled our funding for that to 170 million. And we're trying to push through to buy at least 270 new homes over the next three years to help, again, 
step forward, not dropping the ocean, but still part of a bigger challenge to on, on temporary accommodations. We're literally looking behind sofas, trying to find every available source of funding to tackle the housing crisis and working with the Mayor of London. I just want to understand, what are the big steps you could take? Now, one big step you could take is you could approve bigger, more expensive development, and you could take some of that money. You could The quid pro quo of 85-storey towers, if that's even possible, is that you <laughs> could then use that money to build far more council homes. At the moment, we're talking about incremental change, but do you see that any prospect of a completely new approach which allows a lot more development, say, and brings in more money than you could then spend on other things? I don't see anyone coming to us with those kind of proposals, so I'm not going to get dragged into hypotheticals. I think the reality is there are parts of the city that are set out in our city plan is areas around in Paddington, in Victoria, and others where that sort of greater height is is, is facilitated, but we're also protecting the character of some of our more residential areas. So it's, it's identifying horses for courses across the city. We recognise that people want an opportunity to live in a community that feels like a community rather than necessarily 80 storey towers. So Westminster is a city of mansion blocks. And I think if you've got to pick an ideal type of housing that for a place like Westminster, reasonably high density, but good quality mansion block style housing, what the type of thing that we want to see in Westminster. And it's obviously part of the principles that are behind some of our own developments. It's just what is affordable housing? Because I know that 30% of units, new units, I think in Westminster are meant to be affordable. I just wanted to know what is affordable? So we are doing a range of different things to make housing more affordable. So the current city plan that we've inherited from the Conservatives obviously requires 35% of all developments to be quote-unquote affordable. That, but that's yeah. also a bit of a red herring because uh, at the moment what we're trying to do is make sure that at least 50% 50, 50 of all developments on Westminster Council land are council homes for social rent or key worker homes. But that's that's the starting point. So we're looking at all of our developments now at least 50% and in many cases much more. So in measures that we did last year, we flipped a number of developments in my area that were a half or less than half affordable to being 100% affordable. So council homes for social rent is at the core of it. Right. So we are committed as a council on our own land to ensure that 70% of affordable built on our land is council homes for social rent. And then we're looking at the other 30% on our land to make that more affordable and bring it in line with the Mayor of London's London living rent levels at the top, but also looking at what you can do much lower down the income scale. So we've got some reforms on that piece to make intermediate housing more affordable coming out in the next month or so. But we're already applying those principles to our own developments. And then it's about what more we can do to get developers to build their fair share. As I said, they're being let off by the Conservatives for hundreds of different homes over the years. And we want to be robust in ensuring that they need to be delivering policy compliant amounts of homes in any development that gets built in Westminster. But the key thing is council homes for social rent are the core of what should be affordable housing on Westminster Council's own land. And then across the city, whether that's looking at how to do not only social but intermediate homes for rent, but make sure those are actually affordable to ordinary people. Because at the moment, as you rightly point out, loads of them were being built for sort of people on household incomes between seventy and ninety thousand pounds a year. That isn't affordable in, in many different ways. I think you can talk about certain types of key workers who may be in two nurses living together or whatever, but sometimes that could be a bit hypothetical. And the reality is we are looking at how affordable housing is delivered to make it more affordable in all different tenure types. Another tension you have is you earn a lot of money from the car from parking fees and charges for car parks and whatnot. But as a society, we're trying to move away from the car. How do you see the next 10 years or so going in terms of pedestrianisation obviously takes away car fees? So is that part of the problem for you guys that you want to make money out of the car? We're committed to transforming our curbside in Westminster. We are investing £35 million into more active travel measures and looking at developing parklets and more cycle storage in our parking bays and 
providing a solution to the scourge of e-bikes, which are being dumped all across London at the moment by providing dedicated bays uh, for those two. So you're responsible for that? That's we're, not, we're responsible for trying to fix the problem. No, no, but as a, lime ri- as a lime rider, I like being able to just drop them anywhere. Okay, so now I know <laughs> to blame. <laughs> yes, so it's coming to a, a solution that works for everyone in terms of it, the people being able to get walk down the street, but also have access to active travel measures. And, and ultimately that comes at a cost to the council at the moment, but we're working with the providers to come to a solution that, that means we're not too far out on that. But we need a transport bill to actually fix that problem properly at the government's promise for ages. But in terms of the overall curbside, we recognise there is a transition away from the car. We've seen car ownership amongst Westminster households drop to, I think it's 28% of all households have a car in Westminster. And that's been going down year on year on year. Mm -hmm. So we are focused on how to make our city more accessible for walking and cycling, but recognising that families do, particularly families do have needs that will sometimes require a car. And obviously, we've been massively increasing the number of electric charging points. And we're adding many more over the coming years to help that transition as well. There's a lot going on the curbside, but we also recognise that it will have an impact on our budget over time. But we're prepared for that and we know that we have to make that transition. And do those plans ultimately include pedestrianising Oxford Street at long last? Because this is something Sadiq Khan has been calling for for a long time. He used to have the excuse that it was a Tory Westminster Council that was stopping him. I think he described it as my dream last year. So will you be fulfilling the Um, Mayor of London's dream? Look, we've been working very closely with Steak on our actual plans for Oxford Street, which are about making... Oxford Street a far nicer place to be. We inherited a scheme from the Conservatives that had wasted about £34 million to do absolutely nothing other than build a large mound to very little benefit that anyone's been able to see. We've been working very closely with the businesses on Oxford Street and local residents to get something that works for everyone. And ultimately, that does mean having a mix of different different things, making it less wider pavements, more trees, better lighting, whole range of different interventions to make it an easy place to be, getting taxi ranks on the side streets to get taxis off the main drag and in, into that side street. But the reality is that pedestrianisation has never been something that was being called for by the people on the street, because ultimately you have to be able to get from one end of Oxford Street to another on a bus. It's where do you put the buses has been the eternal challenge there. And I think that's been recognised for a long time. And bluntly, Oxford Street pedestrianisation has not been on the agenda from anyone for a very long time now. What we're focused on is actually getting a deliverable scheme. We're making progress all the time and we're going to be making some big announcements very soon about the next phases of that. We are going to see real change on Oxford Street by the time of the next council elections. And we're doing that in partnership with NWEC, who are leading the local business, with our local residents, and in partnership with TfL, who are working with us on, on, on driving some of that change forward. So it's, we're working collaboratively to get a reasonable and deliverable solution to Oxford Street. Can you give us a an exclusive on the podcast, just one of those concrete things that will lead to big changes on Oxford Street. More trees, wider pavements, less traffic on the on, on the main drag, and we'll get it done. That's the reality, is that it's lots of little bits that come together to make a much more cohesive whole to make the place. So we'll be talking about, talking about that over the next month. We've already been talking to businesses and residents about that vision, and we're just learning from them about what it is that they want, and then we're going to be delivering it over the months ahead. Why not plant more trees everywhere? It's such a low cost thing to do, seemingly. And you're smiling. I'm looking forward to the answer. But in general, isn't it easy to put a lot more nature across the council in various forms? Or am I misguided about the cost of that? Some of the really depressing things about local government is learning how much it costs to do seemingly simple things. And the reality is that in a place like Westminster, the subsoil is incredibly complicated. You have a million and one different fibre companies 
the old cable networks from everyone else, copper wires going back to the invention of the telephone, sewers from Bazalgette, all sorts of things. It is a very complicated place. I know a council development that was being built a few years back almost accidentally turned off all the power to the West End because they dug down and suddenly found they're over the junction box for it. So it, it is sadly a little bit more complicated than that. However, we are going to be significantly increasing the amount of trees that we have in Westminster. We're looking at the curbside again. So it, it's that gradual evolution of parking spaces that are no longer being demanded by cars and are looking at them for trees and parklets and stuff like that. So what about when it's not the soil? For instance, new developments, you could demand they all have green roofs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that, that is already absolutely core to our plan. Obviously, there's biodiversity net gain, which is you know, coming in in the autumn, which sets that in statute, but we've already been pushing forward those kind of practices and we want to make sure that new developments are contributing to greening our city, absolutely, as well as working with existing buildings to retrofit them and find ways of greening them, both from a sort of climate perspective, but also in terms of the physical greenery in the city. One of the sort of tangible measures that you've brought in is free school meals for children in primary schools. What do you make of Labour's national policy U-turning on this idea of, of free school meals for all children? Because clearly, if they had brought that in and if they do get into government, then that would have taken some of the burden off your budget. Look, we appreciate the enormous challenges an incoming Labour government is going to have to overturn the mess that they find the nation's finances in after the Conservatives. So what we've been able to do in Westminster is introduce free school meals for all primary school children as of January. And then as a result of initiatives that the Mayor of London has brought in to help fund some of that cost across London, we're now going to be extending that to nurseries and up to key stage four in secondary. So from three to 14, all Westminster residents will have a free school meal. That's our commitment locally. We are fortunate in a number of ways, both in terms of some of the funding we have available, but also the demographic makeup of our school children, meaning that yeah, a significant portion of them were already on free school meals already, so it makes it easier for us to scale up than it is in some other local authorities. But we've invested £3 million to do that, and we think it's making a real difference to our school communities, giving children a healthy start and tackling household poverty, so it's saving families about £550 per child per year, which obviously is, in the cost of living crisis is hugely important. But we recognise it would be great if a Labour government was able to eventually find the finances to do that, but we recognise the national government is going to be dealing with a lot of really urgent priorities and trying to make the funds available. But I know a Labour government will be supporting our children and young, young people and will be a support to our council in doing that. Whether it's on free school meals, we can't say at this stage. You talked about building a 1,000 homes. I know that there are about a 1,000 empty homes in Westminster with an average value of about a million just quickly, why isn't anything being done about that? Is the empty homes council tax premium not being enforced? Would you like to see that being enforced and also taxes potentially on foreign buyers in the area? The honest truth is that the previous administration didn't do very much on, on empty homes at all. We, for the first time, introduced an empty homes officer. We've not had one for over a decade in Westminster. And I convened a meeting with Action on Empty Homes and a range of people from across local government earlier this week to talk about what more that we can do as a local authority to tackle empty homes. In Westminster, we've been behind the curve, but we are taking action now. And ultimately... There's a range of different challenges in a place like Westminster. Some, a lot of that, yeah, significant portion of that is going to be buy to leave from abroad. Some of it is Airbnb. Well, you can't do much, right, other than make the cost of owning an empty home prohibitive. So, without increasing taxes, if you like, there's not a great deal you can do. 
there's a range of different things that other local councils have been doing more effectively than Westminster has over the years. And we're going to be taking those steps. And some of that's about enforcement. We're lobbying DLUC to try and change the EDMO regime to the empty homes dwelling management order system to actually give more powers to local government to bring empty right, homes right. back into use. I'm just going to stop you because I appreciate the answer, but I want to throw one more at you if I can, which is about homelessness. You talked about it a little bit before, but it's something that everyone experiences in a sense. Of course, it's the people that need homes that we need to help the most. But how does Westminster Council deal with homelessness? You see it a lot in the streets. What can you do? You talked a little bit about it, but what can you do to solve homelessness? Westminster has two real big challenges. There's the rough sleeping or street homelessness challenge where Westminster has the largest number of people on the streets of anywhere in the country because we're the epicentre of lots of transport hubs. And we work very closely with some amazing local charities, uh, make significant investments from our council budget to help people off the streets in Westminster. And that's an ongoing challenge. And it's been obviously harder over the last period, as you've seen more rough sleeping over recent years. But we've got great teams who are working very hard to tackle that. And then the statutory homelessness problem is also massively increasing as well in terms of the families and other people who have, who have connections to Westminster that we have a long term duty to house. And that's exacerbated by the lack of social house building over many years, the impact of right to buy, sell off and all those sorts of things. So we can tackle some of that in the long term by building more council homes. We can do that in the short term by buying more homes for temporary accommodation ourselves rather than having to rely on the private rented sector for that. But I don't have a magic wand to wave, but we are investing hundreds of millions of pounds in both of those initiatives to try and tackle the problem as quickly as we can. But we know it's a long way to go to actually get it fixed. Thank you. That was a really good whip through the key issues of your intray. I'm sure there's plenty more in there as well. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today. It was a great conversation. And thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us, or you can leave one in the YouTube comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, my colleague, Harry Lambert, and our guest, Adam Hugg. We'll be back on Thursday to talk about the week in politics. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.